Thank you. Uh, I want to preface uh, my time here with you all today by saying, as you all can probably tell, I uh, don't sound super great. Uh, I've been getting over a cold uh, over the weekend. Uh, don't know if my voice will endure through the end of this, but since my sermon today involves a man who loses his voice, I'll just consider it a sermon illustration if that happens. <laughs> Today's passage is going to come from Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 57 through 80. We will read the entire passage over the course of this sermon, but for the sake of length, um, we're just going to open with verses 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And when he asked for a writing tablet, and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately... His mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let us pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for the goodness that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save the lost, and that because he was born of a virgin, he is able to accomplish our salvation because he is both fully God and fully man. As we spend time hearing about a scene from the story of the birth of our Savior, I pray the Spirit opens our hearts and our minds to see all that the word has to say to us and would give us the faith to believe all of the goodness that Jesus holds out to us in himself. May I ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. The Bible can be a very hard and difficult book to understand. Uh, there are books of the Bible written thousands of years ago in a part of the world that most of us have probably have never been to and in languages that uh, are not spoken anymore, much less are read anymore. Uh, there are some parts of the Bible that are maybe a little bit more down to earth and accessible to others uh, than others, like uh, the book of Proverbs, the poetry and Psalms, or Paul's letters to people in churches that he knew. But there are some parts of the Bible that are so difficult and so perplexing and so overwhelming that we try to avoid them whenever we can, if we can help it. And out of all of the challenging texts in the Bible, few types of texts in the Bible are more challenging than prophecies. Prophecies require an understanding of geography, historical events, political figures and political calculations from a bygone world and a bygone time. They require a creative imagination to be able to grasp the full poetic picture of the, the imagery the prophet is, is painting and how he describes what is going to happen. And they require a patient persistence as you work through some of the longest and sometimes the shortest books in the entire Bible. 
But out of all those things, probably the hardest thing about reading and understanding a prophecy or a prophetic text is the question, what does this have to do with my life today? That's a really good question to ask. After all, if having a good grasp on this type of text in the Bible requires so much detailed understanding about geography and politics and historical events and so many other things. And if all you walk away from that is just with some extra trivia knowledge about the Bible, why would you waste your time on texts like that when there are other parts of the Bible that are maybe more relevant and and speak to your life today? This is especially the case with Zechariah's prophecy here in Luke. The story of the birth of Jesus is not only one of the most popular stories of the entire Bible, it's one of the most important stories in the entire Bible. It's so important that from the beginning of the church, the calendar revolved around taking breaks from whatever timely or relevant uh, teaching or topical instruction needed to be done so that we could go back to the two stories that really shape and define our faith. And that's the birth of Christ and his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. That you can spend most of the year focusing on things you need to focus on, but we always need to come back to the foundation of our story. Zechariah's prophecy is a beautiful scene in that story. It's a beautiful moment within this story but it's a prophecy. It's not very clear or easy to understand. And since we know from the story that everything that Zechariah prophesies comes to pass, it can be tempting to cruise on by this passage so that we can get to the good parts of the Christmas story. But I want to ask the question, is that actually true? Is Zechariah's prophecy nothing more to us today than a brief interlude in Luke's gospel Or does Zechariah's prophecy have something to say to the people of God today? Now, in order to answer that question, we need to spend some time with the narrative surrounding this prophecy before we can examine the text of the prophecy itself. And only once we look at what this prophecy is saying can we then ask the question, okay, well, does this actually have anything to speak to me today? So stated in three points, the three things we're gonna spend time looking at today is the the buildup to this prophecy, the contents of the prophecy itself, and then we'll answer the question, does this prophecy have anything to do with my life today? So our passage today is taking place mid-scene in an unfolding story. Luke begins his gospel not by foretelling the birth of Christ, but by foretelling uh, the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were a devout couple, but they had no children. Text says that Elizabeth was barren. Now that would be an immensely difficult challenge by itself, but that grief would have been compounded by the fact that Zechariah was a priest. He was not just an ordinary Jew. He was one who was permitted to go into the most sacred and holy spaces of the temple to worship the Lord on behalf of his people. No doubt that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they prayed for for decades. Their friends and their family prayed with them for for a long time that they might one day experience the joy of a child and that the the pain that they must have had to experience to think of, we have to grow old watching our neighbors, our other family members, our countrymen enjoying the quintessential blessing of the Lord. 
No doubt this is maybe something that you've experienced in your own life or you know, someone you know and love have prayed desperately for the Lord to provide a child and have struggled with the pain that infertility can bring. But one day during this seemingly ordinary service at the temple, something extraordinary happens. As Zechariah is burning incense in the Holy of Holies, the angel Gabriel appears right next to the altar. And instead of bringing a message of judgment, like Zechariah probably is expecting in that moment, Gabriel is bringing good news. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a son. This is news that they had hoped they would hear for years. But this is not going to be just an ordinary child. This child is going to be special. Listen to what Gabriel says to Zechariah in verses 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Now, Zechariah very desperately wants this to be true. He desperately hopes that everything this majestic, angelic being has to say to him as he's interrupting his ordinary workday comes to pass. But naturally, Zechariah has a very pressing question in verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And what's interesting here is that Gabriel doesn't answer his question. Gabriel simply states that he is the messenger sent to deliver this news. And now that the job is done, Gabriel's going to do something to Zechariah to drive home the point that Zechariah is not just experiencing an incense-driven acid trip. In verses 19 through 21, we read, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah leaves the Holy of Holies, unable to say, to say a word. And true to Gabriel's word, Elizabeth conceives a child shortly thereafter. And this brings us up to speed to our passage today. Nine months have passed, Elizabeth has given birth. She now holds this child that she's always longed for and dreamed about and prayed for in her arms. Zechariah, on the other hand, still can't talk. He's probably overjoyed that Gabriel's words did in fact come to pass, but he's also probably wondering when he gets to come out of angelic vision time out and be able to talk again. On the eighth day, as prescribed by the Mosaic law, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they come to circumcise the child, which is also when the child would be named. And it should have been a very straightforward and ordinary ceremony, but it gets quickly derailed when Elizabeth objects to the expected name Zechariah and suggests another name, John. 
Now, those present for the ceremony ask Zechariah, what should the child's name be? And he takes a, a writing tablet on hand, not an iPad, but probably uh, something a little bit more basic, uh, and writes, his name is John. Immediately, the text says, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The mystery of this miraculous child continues to multiply as the woman who was long past childbearing years gives birth to a son and a husband who goes silent for nine months begins to speak again. So now this leads us to our next point, Zechariah's prophecy and John the Baptist. Now, if you've lost your ability to talk for nine months, I imagine you've had quite a bit of time to think about and stew about what your first words are gonna be once you get your voice back. Zechariah didn't have access to a computer, he didn't have access to an iPhone or, or, or something like that, so daily ordinary communication no doubt would have been challenging. I'm sure his marriage was strengthened by all of the learning that they had to do from all of the nonverbal communication that had to go on. But at long last, Zechariah finally gets to speak. What does he say? Well, it's interesting to note that Luke, as this very meticulous, uh, detail-driven historian, Luke doesn't explicitly say that the very next words out of Zechariah's mouth, or the very first thing that comes out of his mouth, is this prophecy. But at the same time, the fact that Luke puts this prophecy immediately next to this scene where Zechariah gets his speech back, gets his voice back, is Luke telling us that reader, as the readers of this text, that he wants us to see these two things together. And whatever Zechariah may have intended to say, whatever the laundry list of things that he's wanted to get off of his chest, but has lacked the ability to express, uh, gets interrupted when, as verse 67 tells us, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, the word translated prophesied here is from the Greek word propheteo, which is the standard verb to prophesy. And this only happens when Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit in this particular moment. This means that what Zechariah is about to say is not just his opinion or a loving father bragging about how his son is going to be the most important prophet in Israel since Elijah. I guess that's the equivalent of bragging about how his son's going to be a football player or something. What follows is a genuine spirit-given prophecy equal to any prophecy that comes from Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or any other biblical prophet. And the spirit comes upon Zechariah to give Zechariah words that are far more beautiful, far more glorious than whatever Zechariah had intended to say once he got his speech back. So what then is this prophecy? But one helpful way to think about prophecies in general is to think of a diamond. I mean, imagine I'm holding a giant diamond in my hand here. As you hold this diamond and as you turn around and as you look at it, you see the light refracting in the diamond to create all these beautiful colors and arrays of light as you turn it around and as you look at it from all these different sides, but you're just holding one thing in your hand. And prophecies are no different. There are many different sides to a prophecy, but most prophecies in scripture are ten, trying to make one single point. They're trying to state one single thing amid all the diverse images and descriptions and statements and emotions the prophet may be employing. In fact, if you're reading uh, an Old Testament prophetic book, the subheads that are in your text, 
not original to scripture, but added by the editors who worked on that translation, are probably a very good description of what that one thing is, uh, that one thing a prophecy is about, even as you begin to read all of the various different ways a prophet may be getting at this prophecy, all the various sides to that prophecy. Now, your subhead here for this passage probably just says Zechariah's prophecy, but the same point applies. There are many different sides to this prophecy. As we turn it around and as we look at it, you'll see several different things, but it's making one point. It's making one, one single point. Zechariah begins his prophecy by saying that God has shown favor to Israel. He has raised up the line of David once again, just as the prophets had long foretold. This is the first, one of the first sides of this prophecy, which we read about in verses 68 through 70. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah continues to his prophecy by explaining why God has been kind to Israel and has restored the Davidic dynasty. The Lord has done this so that he might provide Israel deliverance from her enemies and that those who oppress and suppress the people of God would be cast away, in keeping with many of the other promises that God has made to his people in generations past. This is another side of this prophecy. And we read about it in verses 71 through 72 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Zechariah next explains the point of God bringing deliverance to his people from their enemies. Is God just doing this just because he wants to or just because he can? Does God expect anything in response to his gracious work here? And the answer to that is yes. God isn't bringing deliverance for Israel from her enemies just so the people of God can then go and do whatever they want. The purpose of all of this is so that God's people can serve the Lord in holiness and in righteousness without fear of persecution or retribution. This is another side or another angle to this prophecy as we read about in 73 through 75. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. Next, Zechariah goes from the big picture view of what God is doing to zoom in on his newborn son, John. The big picture of what God is doing is not just this kind of abstract, idealized concept. What God is doing to redeem his people is now tangibly located in this child. From the very beginning of his existence, John's purpose was to announce the coming of the Lord, the one from the restored line of David who will bring salvation and redemption and forgiveness for his people. John's purpose is to prepare the Lord's way by preparing a people to receive the coming of the Lord, that they might repent of their sins and perceive the one who is coming when he arrives. This is another side or another angle of this prophecy, which we read about in 67, uh, or 66, 76 or 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Lastly, Zechariah ends his prophecy by saying that his son, this prophet who's going to go before the Lord to prepare his way, isn't going to be just a prop or just a hype man for someone else. The consequences of John's life and ministry are going to be long lasting and far larger in scope than even Zechariah may understand in this particular moment, which we read about in 78 through in 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So now having looked at all the various sides or all the various angles of this prophetic diamond, what is the one thing this diamond of a prophecy is about? Well, to answer that question, we'll now turn to our third point. Does this prophecy mean anything for us today? If I were to describe the one thing that Zechariah's prophecy is about, I would make the case that Zechariah's prophecy, with all its various sides, with all its various angles, with all the various points that it makes, is all pointing to one truth, that God's plan of salvation is progressing in history just as God intends and according to his oversight. See, in his planning and his timing, God is working all things together for his glory and for our good. And in this scene, this snapshot of this plan unfolding, God is moving that plan forward through the birth of John the Baptist, the one who will go before the Lord to announce his coming. Everything that Zechariah prophesies comes to pass. We read in verse 80 that the child, uh, meaning John, grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John would appear preaching a message of repentance and baptizing in the Jordan, and even Jesus himself would come to be baptized by him. Even though John would suffer terribly and greatly at the end of his life and at the end of his ministry, his life and ministry accomplished the purpose that God had for him. John was not the Messiah, but John's ministry prepared the way for everything that Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, would accomplish for us in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. Jesus secured a knowledge of salvation for his people and their forgiveness of their sins by living a sinless life of obedience to the law, dying on a cross for a, as a sacrificial lamb of atonement for the sins of the very people that he came to save. But while John stayed dead after he was beheaded by Herod, the grave could not keep Jesus Christ down. And by his physical resurrection from the dead and in his ascent into heaven, we can now look forward to everything Jesus is going to do for us because of everything he has already accomplished for us. God's plan of salvation is progressing in history just as God intends and according to his oversight. But what about the one question that I've yet to answer? Does Zechariah's prophecy mean anything for us today? Well, here's the thing. Everything that Zechariah prophesied came to pass. And it's still coming to pass. Remember that last side that I mentioned how the consequences of John's life and ministry would be, long, would be far greater and longer lasting than maybe even Zechariah was maybe aware of in the moment? 
In the second to last line of that prophecy, there is an allusion or a, a casual reference to the book of Isaiah, specifically when Zechariah prophesies uh, to give light to those who sit in darkness, he is directly ref referring to Isaiah 9-2, which is part of the passage that we even read in service this morning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But who are the people that have walked in darkness that Isaiah is talking about and Zechariah is making a reference to? Well, put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jew. If I'm a first century Jew, and if I hear a phrase like people who walk in darkness, what is the only possible option that that phrase could refer to? Gentiles. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he's not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah, the savior of both Jew and Gentile. And if John the Baptist's ministry prepared the way for the savior of the Jews, it means he also prepared the way for the savior of the Gentiles as well, for the savior of you and me. God's plan of salvation is progressing in history just as God intends and according to his oversight, which means that Zechariah's prophecy is still coming to pass. When someone repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ, for their salvation, God's plan of salvation is progressing in history just as he intended and according to his oversight. When missionaries like Brian Pate take the gospel to places that have never heard the name of Jesus before, God's plan of salvation is progressing in history just as God intends and according to his oversight. When we suffer trials, hardships, persecution, or the loss of privilege and power in the name of Christ, God's plan of salvation is continuing just as he intends and according to his oversight. When Liberty Dalhart dedicates several Sundays of Sunday school to train people on how to share their faith with unbelievers, like y'all were doing a couple weeks ago when I first came out to preach, God's plan of salvation is continuing and progressing through history just as he intends and according to his oversight. Your life, your faith, and your church here today is all part of this prophecy coming to pass and still coming to pass. Christians have recognized throughout history that Zechariah's prophecy is a prayer that scripture gives us to connect our present day mission, the present day great commission to the mission of John the Baptist. Just as John prepared the way for the coming of the Lord, so we prepare the way for the Lord to come and the lives of those who do not yet know him by sharing the gospel and by living lives of godly obedience. We give others knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. We have seen the sunrise 
visit us from on high in our own lives. And we also believe that the sunrise of the gospel continues to visit on high to people who right now, this present moment, are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Our feet have been guided into the way of peace. And now our feet are the feet, the beautiful feet that bring the good news to others who might also know Christ and walk in peace with him as well. So as I close out this sermon today, I'm going to pray as a conclusion, Zechariah's prophecy. And I ask you to join me in praying this prayer in your own hearts. And as you do, I want you to think about the ways in which Zechariah's prophecy may speak to your life today and how you might take the gospel to others this Advent season. Let us pray. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Would you stand?